0: It's a great privilege to be able to worship with our families on a regular basis. Uh, Ruth chapter 3 this morning is where we're going to be. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful on the table back there. Please go grab one and uh, use it. See the words that I'm going to read in front of you. It'll be an immense help because we're going to look at some things in great detail this morning. Ruth chapter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 1. I'm just going to read the entirety of the chapter. Um, Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother in law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative uh, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and you have gone after you have not gone after young men, rather poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you I will do all for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. She lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before, before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that this, this woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So last week we spent our time in chapter three also, and we were just considering a handful of things that were going on, particularly from Naomi's perspective. Naomi uh, concocts this what we called reckless and risky plan. What is that? What is it that Naomi uh, commissions Ruth to do here in chapter three? Uh, this plan came out and was born out of impatience. She saw an opportunity for her daughter-in-law to no longer be a childless widow. And she concocts this plan in haste. And that puts Ruth in this potentially compromising situation. And you'll recall as we thought through that and we applied that maybe to our day to day and considered the things that were going on in our day today, we thought about two words that seemed to be contradictory on their face. Patiently urgent. How can we as people be patiently urgent? We've been given the mission to make disciples. That is our mission. Jesus commissions us to make disciples. But we, as people who sit together in this room, must not grow impatient in our mission. We must not grow impatient in our mission. And when we don't see the yield that we think that we should be seeing, immediately we should continue being patient and being faithful. God has given us this task to make disciples. And to be a disciple who makes disciples, but that process isn't a checklist. Friends, our world is all about checklists. We love the idea of a checklist. But being a disciple means being a learner and being a worshiper and being a servant. And if you can show me the metrics or the measurables for those things, I'd love to know. But because of the sin that plagues our own hearts, all of us worship, our worship wiring goes haywire and we worship other things other than the one true God. We worship different things other than the one true God and His Son, Jesus. We worship our families or our hobbies or our work. And we find our worth in them and we see them as our source. Or, we, or our servant wire goes haywire. And we serve ourselves rather than God and others. We hurt others. We walk on them. We ignore God and discard people. And we pridefully act like we know everyone and everything. And that's where our learning wire goes haywire. We ignore God's word and prayer and discard people. And being a disciple means in humility learning. Being a disciple means in humility serving. And being a disciple means in humility worshiping the one true God and his son Jesus Christ. And the gospel produces this humility in us. If we're centered on the gospel as a people, this gospel produces this humility in us by showing us that it was not through our work that we were saved or our merit that salvation came to us. But when we were dead, God made us alive in Christ. And when we were in total darkness, God sent the light of the world. When we lived pridefully, we were not disciples or disciple makers. And again, this disciple making, disciple mission is not a checklist. And that's what makes it so difficult. Naomi saw an opportunity for Ruth to get somewhere in this life, to no longer be a childless widow. And she pushed impatiently and risked and was reckless. And sure, the situation was urgent, but compromises were made in impatience. And we learned that we should see our disciple-making mission as urgent, but with patience. We're a people who want a perceivable result. We want a high rate of return. We want a high yield. And oftentimes, that leads us to compromise. God says to us, you leave the results to me in your disciple-making mission. Just be faithful to point others to me in your learning, in your worshiping, and in your serving. The desire for a big return on investment is why we've convinced ourselves that we don't have time to make disciples. Because if you don't, if you do, if you don't get instant results, you move on. I like to build things and work with my hands, and I know a lot of you also like to build things and work with your hands. But I have to be careful because that exposes a hidden corner of my heart, a sinful corner in my heart that says my desire to achieve an intended result in my work can quickly become a source of satisfaction for me, a source of satisfaction that I want to make ultimate but is not ultimate and cannot offer ultimate satisfaction to me. Achieving a result with materials is not eternally satisfying. Jesus is and friends we must see that when we when we and others that we know are growing as disciples those results are a hundred percent God's work not our work he calls us to be faithful to the task he's given us and many of you in this room I'm blown away by God's work in your life and it is God's work it is God's work Love for God and a love for His Word, increasing in understanding, learning with regularity, endurance in difficult situations, situations that that many people would cave under. The work of God in your life is producing endurance in you, inviting others into your home in hospitality, showing them the love of God around the table, communing with them, quickly serving others who find themselves in difficult situations. Having a hunger just for growth, to know other people, to love them. That's not your work. Friends, that's not your work. You may have to wake up and resolve to do it, but that's God's grace producing something in you. Producing something in you and changing you into someone who is a learner, into someone who is a worshiper, into someone who is a servant. The strength of the disciple maker comes from and is God himself. The strength of the disciple maker comes from, it is God himself. The the growth of the disciple comes from God himself. And all glory to be God in that process. And God was at work in Ruth. And he was going to take a risky and reckless plan concocted by Ruth's mother-in-law and use it to show us something beautiful about who he is. So last week we talked about, we, we wanted to, Paint a picture with three things from chapter 3. Last week we talked about the misplaced identity. And we talked about the priority of patience. And this week we're going to talk about the righteous response of Boaz. To this risky and reckless plan. What is Boaz's response? It's a righteous response. It is the correct response. It is how scripture wants us to respond when faced with in a compromising or a potentially compromising situation. So right out of the gate, I want to point back to chapter 2. When did the events of chapter 2 take place? The events of chapter 2 take place right in the middle of the day. Right in the middle of the day is when the events of chapter 2 take place. And one of the reasons Naomi's plan is reckless and risky in chapter 3 is because it happens at nighttime. Nothing good happens in the middle of the night. Nothing good happens in the middle of the night. You know that to be true about your world. Under the cover of darkness, but the plan comes to a head at midnight. So, what's being communicated here? In the daytime, when people are watching, it's easy to project an upright image. But in the night, when no one is watching, it's here that we find out who we are. We say, I'm alone, it's not hurting anyone. But in those moments, that's where we show our true colors. Psalm 69.5 says, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. In those moments when we believe that no one is watching, we say something about who we believe God to be and who we say that we are. We say that our life doesn't belong to him. We say that we're not accountable or responsible for the actions in the way that he says we are. He says that his command to us to be holy is optional. And so we're led to ask the question, will Boaz respond in the same way in darkness as he does in the light of day? Will Boaz respond in the same way in darkness as he does in the light of the day? And the answer is yes, he does. We see this in his greeting. We see this in his greeting. May the Lord May you be blessed by the Lord, is what he says to Ruth. Look in verse 10. Uh, If you go back up the page to verse 8, we see that this is now midnight. And the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet, and he said, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And then he said, May you be blessed by the Lord. In chapter 2, he does the same. He greets his servants by saying, The Lord bless you. And he also, in chapter 3, addresses Ruth as his daughter. He says, Now, my daughter, do not fear. He does the same in chapter 2. His behavior here in chapter 3 is consistent as it is in chapter 2. In verse 8 of chapter 2, he he says to her, he says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, he treats her in the same way in the middle of the day and and in the middle of the night. Now, Boaz was probably significantly older than Ruth. We have a clue in the second half of verse 10 in chapter 3. He says, you have made this kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor, and calling out the young men he's probably saying those guys are different from me I'm, I'm older she didn't chase after the young guys the strong attractive guys who are in the field with their bronze skinned and their muscle tone they're working in the field all day when we saw Boaz was a worthy man in chapter 2 in the daytime and that he is consistent even at midnight we are meant to think this guy is unflappable I don't know if you use that word This guy's unflappable. Nothing gets to him. Here's a young woman whose actions could easily have been interpreted as sensual, easily been interpreted as suggestive, and he treats her with respect. He doesn't take advantage of the situation. What's the key here? He looks long-term. He looks long-term. Ruth's response to the question, who are you, is I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She's quoting him from back in 2.12, where he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth sees Boaz as God's provision for her. The very wings of God. But when she says what she says, his response is long-term. He exercises the patience that Naomi doesn't. He treats Ruth with respect, but he tells her that he needs to get organized. He tells her that there's a redeemer that's closer than he. He can't realize his role as redeemer and provider. Now, the idea of redeemer has come up a couple of times, and it's pretty much exactly what it looks like on its face. Essentially, if Someone entered into a season of need. If they entered into a season where they had nothing, a family member was expected by law to step in and care for the party in need. And this person would be referred to as a redeemer. God refers to himself as redeemer. We think about the Exodus in particular. If we think about Exodus 6, 6, God tells Moses this very thing. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Redeemers were determined by closeness and family relationship. And Boaz knew of another man who was closer in family ties to Ruth through Naomi, and therefore could choose to be the one who cares for her or as Ruth says be the wings of God. For the widow provision would naturally be seen as marriage. So in this moment Boaz is stating that his intentions are to marry Ruth if the man nearer does not assume the role. And even in the middle of the night Ruth or Boaz thinks long term in his Interactions with Ruth. He is wise. He knows what God requires and wants to honor God in every situation. Whether it be in the middle of the day or in the middle of the night. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Boaz is an outstanding example of biblically instructed man who makes wise, instinctive responses in critical situation. Boaz states his intentions with Ruth and then he sends her away with plenty. He wants Ruth and Naomi to know that he is going to follow through. Ruth gets up before she's recognizable. Even even the appearance of impropriety, even the image of impropriety is thought through by Boaz. He wants to protect Ruth's reputation from Naomi's reckless plan. And then he gives Ruth six measures of barley as a down payment on his lasting provision for Ruth to show Naomi. So we see Boaz's righteous response to this risky and reckless plan set out before Ruth. And there's a lot we can learn here, but we don't have a lot of time. So I'm just going to give you two things, especially in the way that this text directs us to Jesus. First thing, first thing is this. What we do behind closed doors alone when no one is watching reveals who we truly are. What we do behind closed doors alone when no one is watching reveals who we truly are. Now, before we step into this, we have to be warned of moralism that tends to creep in when we think about this. What this is saying, what I'm saying here is not that whatever, whatever ingenuity or creativity that you can apply to be the same person in, in your uh, loneliness as amongst other people that's that's a salvific element or that saves you. The reality is that that's not true. The reality is the only way that this takes place is through transformation that comes through Jesus Christ. And just like Boaz found himself alone with temptation at his feet and responded righteously, Jesus found himself in a position of temptation in the wilderness and responded righteously. Matthew 4 records Jesus going into the wilderness alone and fasting. Now, if you've ever fasted, you understand that you start to get hungry quickly. And then you get hangry because you don't have food. Matthew 4, 2 says, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's like the most obvious statement that's ever been made. I, th- I think that's the most obvious verse. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah. And everything starts to come glued in your brain when you start to get hungry, right? You know that. That's the purpose of fasting. Friends, that's the purpose of fasting. Because you can't rely on your own, your own ingenuity, your own creativity to get you from point A to point B. I would rather that you would rely on God and not food as your ultimate source. Jesus was 40 days into fasting, so he's probably pretty weak. And then Satan shows up and tempts him. Satan shows up and tempts him to break his fast, to test God and offering uh, him earthly dominion. And Jesus responded in each instance, how does he respond? With scripture. He gives him scripture. No one was there, but in his weakness, Jesus responded in holiness. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This high priest is Jesus. He never sinned. He always honored God with his actions. And when Boaz woke and he was startled by a young woman at his feet, he proved daytime Boaz was no different than nighttime Boaz. Jesus, in the wilderness, acted with resolve. No one was around. He could have made that stone into bread. No one would have known, right? Again, Psalm 69.5 rings in our ears. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Jesus never sinned. Charles Jefferson writes that a mature Christian is tested, not in his public performances, but what he does when the world is not looking. When we identify Jesus and honor God, even in the dark of night, when we think no one is watching, we quote Deuteronomy 8.3 with Jesus in Matthew 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friends, here it is. Make God's word your food, and you won't make compromises in the moments of temptation. Make God's word your food, and you will not make compromises in the moments of temptation. Boaz made God's word his food, and he honored God even at midnight. So ask yourself the question what is my midnight? This looks different in our world. This looks different in our world. When am I alone and convinced that no one is watching? And am I indulging in sinful behavior in the times where I'm alone? Where is the place where I find myself in my day where I'm convinced that my Christ likeness doesn't matter? That no one sees me and honoring God is far from my mind. If we're honest and because our culture values privacy so highly, this is a lot more often than we think. This is a lot more often than we think. After or before hours in the office, late nights after our spouse and our kids have gone to bed. In ancient societies, houses were full of families They were full of families, extended families, not just immediate families. Very few rooms. Much of it was common. And when the sun went down in ancient societies, very little happened. Because lighting a home was expensive. We live in a world where the lights never have to go off. Which means our patterns of life differ from others. I go to bed at 10 p.m., Some of you go to bed at 2 a.m. Our patterns of life are very different. And when our patterns of life are that different, you will find yourself in different places than a lot of people with a lot of midnight. What do we do behind closed doors alone when no one is watching reveals who we truly are? Will we honor God by knowing him through his word and grounding all of our life in it? Will we pursue self or self-interest in those moments? Make God's word your food and you will honor God at midnight. Finally, then the second thing in conclusion this morning is this. Stand in awe of God's redeeming work in Christ. Stand in awe of God's redeeming work in Christ. Oftentimes, friends, this gets shoved or swept under the rug. We say that we believe. We say that we have trusted God. But we treat it like a back page news story. We treat it like an opinion piece. It's not. It's the greatest truth that we can know. Boaz was ready to redeem Ruth, to care for her long term, to provide for her not only in the moment but for the rest of her life. Friends, Christ is your redeemer. Christ is your redeemer. He is our redeemer. We together before Christ, we together in this room were a spiritual widow. We were a spiritual widow. Ruth's deceased husband, his name was Malin. That means sickly. He passed and left Ruth with nothing. She needed to be cared for in her crisis of life. In the same way, in the same way what the world promised to us, the provision, the care, the comfort, the blessing, the satisfaction, the happiness, the world has failed to deliver us. The world has failed to deliver us. The world is afflicted with a great sickness and that sickness is sin. And the world inevitably will abandon us in the moments of greatest need. When we call out, deliver us, the world shrinks back because it can't deliver what it's promised. It can't deliver comfort. It can't deliver happiness. It can't deliver satisfaction. All of those things will be ripped from our hands Like the life was ripped from Malin. But friends, there is one in whom strength resides, who makes good on all the promises of God. In stark contrast, God makes a way. Boaz means strength is within him. The deliverer, the redeemer, strength is within him. There is one whose strength resides, who can make good on all of the promises of God. This sickly, diseased world can't make good on any of its promises. It can't. Stop investing time there. There is one who can make good on all the promises of God. His name is Jesus Christ. And when all is lost and your heart is troubled, Jesus tells us to hold out our garment And he gives us six measures of barley. He tells us to come and eat and drink with him. He says, you're not my servant, you're my friend. This is the king of the, the universe. This is the king of the universe who says, I'm going to fill you. Not only in the moment. That's all the world can offer you. Just a moment. God can offer you in Christ an eternity of plenty. Jesus Christ, his blood was drained for you, for your redemption, for your provision. Blood and water flowed from his side to deliver us, to redeem us. But strength was within him, and the serpent's head was crushed. The grave was shamed, and the world stood with its mouth agape while he made it his footstool. The nations may rage, but Jesus has already brought about peace and gives it freely. Friends, how can we not shout this from the rooftop? God has made us right with himself through Christ Jesus. And we stand and, and, and think to ourselves, what, this, is, this is a secondary thought in my day. I am not going to give this a second thought this week. The nations may rage. Jesus has already brought about peace and gives it freely. Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, but I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Notice that he says in there. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Not as the world, not as the one who can't offer you satisfaction or comfort, Oh, more than just in the moment? So the question comes, if, we, if you're here this morning and you don't know the king of the universe, turn to him. Admit that you've been looking for peace and comfort and provision and care and blessing and happiness and worldly things. Things that are sick with sin. And trust Jesus. He can give you all of these things and more. They are coming with such finality. Not now, but soon. You think you know what you need? You don't. Admit that. Your Creator does. And Jesus bore the weight of your sin. Believe that. Turn to Him. Trust Him fully and worship Him with all of your life. If you're here this morning and you do know the king of the universe, but you've drifted drifted towards sickly and false promises of the world, come back to Jesus. Friends, I don't lose sleep because my kids wake me up even though they do. I wake up in the middle of the night and pray and labor over all of you. That you would be in awe of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. and that it would impact your life, and that you would shout from the rooftops that Jesus is your king and your shepherd and your friend. The yes to the promises of God. Strength is within him, and he is calling to you as your shepherd this morning. If the awe is buried in your heart, uncover it with God's word and in prayer and with the people of God. If you this morning, here this morning, and you have not ever experienced the awe that comes about with believing the truth of the gospel, then it's buried. Uncover it with God's word and plead with God that it would be uncovered and be together with the people of God and say, How can we uncover this together? Go up to a high mountain, O Zion Let's pray.